You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. T.C. Boyle is an American author and of short stories and novels. His novels include Water Music, Drop City, The Inner Circle, Talk Talk, The Women, When the Killing's Done, The Harder They Come, The Terranauts, and his newer novel is Talk to Me. Thank you for joining me, T.C. Pleasure, Rick. This is a very interesting novel. It, it in a sense, it's almost like a play because you have a, a limited cast of characters, and, and I'm and one of the characters is a chimpanzee, and this is a very uh, a big stretch for you, I think, and but also it, it comes from a place that's very important to you. How long has this novel been like waiting to come out of you? Well, what you're referring to, Rick, for those who haven't read the book, is that uh, one thing that motivated me was to examine animal consciousness in this, specifically through going back in time to the uh, experiments with chimps to teach them our language in the 70s and and 80s. And some of these experiments are ongoing. Um, We have always been told, especially by our religions, that uh, we are separate from the animals because we have language. And I just wanted to examine that and uh, and dramatize it. And so in this book, uh, alternating chapters are told from the point of view of a very bright chimp who is undergoing one of these experiments. You know, I, I really love the, the way you modulate the characters too. Uh, the two other main characters, are Amy, she's a, a grad student who comes to join the <laughs> uh, a professor who's working with the chimp, Guy Shim- Shimmerhorn, and we have Amy. So talk about, Amy is a really interesting character. You kind of uh, keep it under the hood to a certain extent, but she's super gorgeous, but extremely shy. And I think that's an interesting choice for you. So talk about creating the character of Amy, who carries a lot of the story. Yeah, she's the heroine here. Uh, the book opens with her. She's, uh, let me read you the first lines. I have the book in my hand. First lines. It, the chapter is called To Tell the Truth after the TV show in which she sees a chimp, Sam, on the show. She wasn't studying. Studying was what she was supposed to be doing, what she intended to do, what she was going to start doing any minute now. First, though, she had to wait for the album to finish. The new Talking Heads, with its bass-heavy rendition of Take Me to the River, which she couldn't get enough of, and clicked through all the channels on the TV while absorbing her daily dose of disodium, guanolite, autolyzed yeast extract, and rendered chicken fat in her top ramen, etc. So we opened with a college student, She's doing what we all did as college students, putting off work as much as possible. And she's lifting through the channels when she comes across the game show to tell the truth. And uh, the uh, correct answer for tell the truth is this guy, Guy Shermerhorn, this professor. And she realizes that he's a professor at her a college. Uh, and then she is attracted to him and to the chimp immediately when she sees the chimp. It's uh, her heart goes out and her, and, her, and her consciousness too. And that's how we set things in motion. Now, uh, I really like uh, the character of Guy is also <laughs> really interesting because he wants to be a nice guy, but he's kind of a weasel. <laughs> and and uh, you describe him <laughs> as that. <laughs> I, and so talk about Guy, because he's another part of this. Essentially, this book is a, is a love triangle, and I hadn't thought about that till just this instant. Wow. Beautifully said, Rick. I see it that way myself. Uh, I should say, too, historically, that this goes back to my very first book, which is called Descent of Man. Uh, 
uh, after the story, Descent of Man, which I wrote as a college student uh, at the Writers' Workshop in Iowa City in the 1970s when I first discovered that we were doing these experiments to teach apes our language. Um, so uh, that story is also a love triangle between uh, a researcher, uh, her schmuck of a boyfriend, and a very, very brilliant chimp named Conrad. It's told in a very absurdist, over-the-top way. In this book, of course, I've gone a lot deeper, and uh, it's much more uh, realistic uh, in terms of what actually happened in these experiments. And Guy, like uh, many researchers, is, uh, is more concerned with his own career and his... Uh, his own publication of these experiments than he is with the welfare of uh, Sam, the chimp, under his control. I think, too, uh, for you, if you don't mind me saying this, I mean, as I understand it, you're a vegetarian. And no, not entirely, but, not but entirely. mostly. Mostly. I'm uh, not eating animals with faces on them. Oh, a wise choice. <laughs> And I think some of that thinking is reflected in this book. But I think, too, what I really like is that how much did you research um, chimp consciousness to come up with um, Sam's writings, the, the portions of the novel that are told from Sam's perception? Because I think you do a really good job. And we see like an almost terrifying evolution of that in the, in the process of this novel. Um, I, of course, did a, a lot of reading in the field, which is fascinating uh, and kind of heartbreaking, too. Uh, oh, God, yes. <laughs> some, of the, some of the books of the true stories uh, are really quite, quite fascinating, like the story of Lucy, for instance, and other of the famous chimps of that era. Um, I did have a friend who is uh, who, who's a primatologist. And she turned me on to one of her students who took me to the LA Zoo where she is studying the chimp troops there. And uh, let me see behind the scenes a bit and, uh, and discover some things firsthand. But basically, uh, this is a book in which I've done the research on the page and then jammed up a story because what does it mean? What does it mean to have language? Uh, the presumption is that there are two things in this. One, if we could speak as we, you and I are speaking now to another species, then that would reveal some deep secrets of, of life and intimacies of life that we don't have access to. I believe that that is doomed to failure. Uh, and secondly, uh, that the chimps would be improved by being able to converse in our language and their brains would expand and who knows what would happen down the, down, down the street. Uh, this ignores the fact that the chimps have their own language, which is gestural and guttural uh, and is perfectly adequate for their needs through all these eons of evolution, except that this other big ape came along and destroyed their environment and put them in cages. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem for, for many other species on this planet, we are. Right, and I'm not, I'm not dissing these other great apes. In fact, every night for my, in my, most of my life, I sleep in bed next to a great ape uh, who snores, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I think, too, one of the things I think you just said is really important, which is that the, you know, if we could just talk to the animals, as it were, in our language or in some in-between language, uh, we could understand them. We would we would get the, there would be some kind of revelation. And all, there's also the thought that uh, that you very importantly pointed out that they would be improved by contact with our intelligence. Now, um, I'm more and more. In, inclined to think that intelligence may not be the great uh, evolutionary benefit it's all cut out to be, given that we're well on our way to exterminating the possibility of our own existence in the place we live, um, whereas animals uh, have 
managed to adapt and could just go on merrily without us. <laughs> but, yes, yes, I think this is the essence of what I'm getting at here, Rick. Uh, um, well said. Um, I often wonder about evolution in terms of uh, we presume that we are the crown of creation and that uh, we've achieved these heights of evolution and that it is all to the good. But in fact, evolution doesn't go in a direct line. It, uh, it is an adaptation to circumstances. And so what do we need this superpower of our brains for? Yes, we needed enough brain power to escape the other predators, for instance, and rise above them. But now it's kind of a backwater of evolution. What do we need all of this for? <laughs> We're creating AI to take over for us. We have, uh, there are 8 billion of us. We have polluted the planet. We've destroyed the other species. Um, yes, we're beautiful. Yes, we have language. Yes, our language and our arts are beautiful. But yet we've threatened, as you suggest, the very circumstances and conditions that allowed us to thrive and be alive on this planet. So that's also a consideration when I'm talking about uh, the way we are treating the other species. It's almost like some horrible sci-fi movie that some aliens came to earth and and uh, took every cow and sheep and everything else and, and, and pigs and put them in these horrible meat factories without any consideration for their feelings or their rights, their animal rights. Um, a pig, like a chimp, is as intelligent as a three-and-a-half-year-old child. That's a lot of intelligence. If you've seen any three-and-a-half-year-old child's uh, children lately, and I have, I have, there's one living next door to me, um, to imagine that consciousness put away in a cage is pretty sad. Further, what people don't know about these experiments necessarily is that, as with Sam in this book, uh, chimps were taken away from their mothers at birth and raised as human beings in a human household to see how they would acquire language and all the other tasks that, that children learn you know, with their parents. Uh, the problem is a chimp is far, far stronger than any human being, much, much more powerful. It is a wild animal. It's dangerous. Dogs and cats, we have uh, you know selected for thousands of generations for or the kind of characteristics that, that we want, the, the docility and so on, it doesn't always work. But the chimps are coming right out of the jungle. They were in the 70s. It's right out, kidnapped out of the jungle. And now, and now, of course, from breeding facilities, but they're still wild animals. So that when they reach puberty, they become extremely dangerous and can no longer be worked with. All the chimps you see in the movies are so adorable. These are juveniles. Once it becomes an adolescent, as with our species, as with the males of our species especially, it's far too dangerous. And so these animals, which have been pampered and taught our language, are then caged and used, were, this is over now, I think, uh, were caged and used in various uh, biological experiments. And they live to be 50 years old uh, on average. So the, the nervous cruelty involved here is quite staggering and so we have a hero a picaresque hero named sam and he's going to try to rise above all that with the help of amy and sort of guy guys <laughs> he's helpful so long as it uh, as it so far as it goes and also i Let's give a nod to one of the most horrific, evil, awful villains ever created. <laughs> I think <laughs> by you, Dr. Moncrief. This guy, I mean, he, he could be a bad guy. He could be a bad Nazi in a Indiana Jones movie. Uh, he is based on an actual figure from this era who dominated the... Um, the studies of chimps in various universities and uh, he bred them and he doled them out. And again, he saw them simply as uh, figures, like chess pieces uh, with no regard for their feelings. And we should talk about love too. 
do animals have love? Yes, of course they do. Anybody who has a pet knows that. Um, as you said earlier, this is a kind of love triangle. Amy loves Sam and Sam loves Amy. Uh, it's, it's a simple relationship and it's not just exclusively among human beings. You know, that's really interesting that it, it's so true. And I think you do a good, you do a fantastic job, actually, of showing how that comes to pass from both sides. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that Sam, the relationship that Sam has to all humans is, the relationship, you know, that humans might have to a much more intelligent species. You know, when you were talking about uh, the aliens coming to Earth and putting pigs and cows and turning them into, uh, you know, meals, all I could think of was, it's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so all of these questions are revolved in this book. The joy for me, as I said earlier, was writing from the point of view of Sam. How does he feel? And it's, I'm trying to use his vocabulary. I emphasize the words that he knows uh, in bold letters so that you know that these are his actual words. But of course, the novelist is, as with all characters, is standing beside uh, him uh, to give you the picture of what's happening. And you know, I love his character in the way, let's say that I love Ned Rise from Water Music, my first novel. He's a picaresque hero. He, like any juvenile uh, moving toward adolescent, uh, adolescence doesn't want to do what he's required to do. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't want to be drilled. He doesn't want to learn language. He wants to express his animality and his freedom. It's another problem with the, the chimp studies. And I might say, he wants to drink beer and eat candy, much like any other human <laughs> adolescent. Yes, he does. He does. Um, um, these chimps, they're intelligent. They're strong. They don't want to be in a cage. They don't want to go to school. And so I had a lot of fun with his, uh, his rebelliousness and his uh, joie de vivre. And as a novelist, I noticed... It's an, an incredibly skillful use of overlapping narratives and uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, perceptions where we'll see uh, action from Sam's point of view and then you'll roll back the time just a bit and underlay it. So the novel has a very wonderful layered feel. It's like, you know, the uh, French pastry of novels. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> What a great metaphor. Um Yes, yes. Uh, this is one of the joys of novel writing is that you can present opposing points of view. I suppose uh, most people listening will know of my work, will know uh, the Tortilla Curtain uh, from 1995, which deals with illegal immigration from Mexico. And there are four points of view. Uh, that of an Anglo couple living in Topanga Canyon in a, a walled community husband and wife, and then uh, husband and wife, uh, illegal immigrants from Mexico living in Topanga Canyon itself in the woods by the stream uh, as animals, because we are animals and this is the best they can do. And you get all four points of view alternating. Uh, many people have said to me over the years that that book in particular opened their eyes to some of the uh, questions of of how we treat um, our own species, how we treat people from other countries, and how we are all one animal species and border walls and uh, right-wing zealots, uh, irrespective of them, uh, we are going to move where the resources is like anyone else. And so people would say to me, you know, it opened my eyes. I didn't realize I see these guys lined up waiting for work and I didn't know who they were. If you read a novel from different points of view, well, then you do know who they are because you are inside the mind of Candido Rincon in that novel or his wife, America. Or in this novel, you're inside the mind of Sam. So you do know who the, they are. They're not just anonymous anymore. And I think that's what a point of view in a novel can do uh, 
can do for you and can really um, enrich the emotional experience for the reader. And by the way, this is the moment at which we should give a warning to everybody out there. There is a climactic scene in this book that will tear your heart out because it tore mine out. I was sobbing when writing it. <laughs> we'll give away anything more than that. But this is, uh, yes, it's a love story, but it's also uh, tragic. Oh, ultimately tragic. So, so very much so. I have to agree. I, I, you know, was happy. I'm glad I was able to uh, conduct this interview without sobbing because I just finished reading <laughs> the book shortly beforehand. That's oh, I, really? Oh, I, that's how I prefer to do things. So it's all fresh and what's left of my tiny mm. brain. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things, too, I, I think that you do so well in this book is just to show kind of like the everyday life of America. I mean, Amy is this grad student. She's her parents aren't rich. She isn't rich. Guy is kind of just clinging to it. And I think I love the fact that he's tenured. It, it, it's like he is like he is the la cucaracha of this book, <laughs> and that's exactly and only because he's tenured. So we get an interesting look at people who are trying to prepare for a career and people who are embedded in careers and people who are just of the darkest heart that one can possibly imagine. Yes, and of course, their careers, we all have our careers and we're all embedded in our careers and so on, but few of us have a career in which animals are used or misused as you, as a, however you'd like to, to examine it in this book. Uh, so that gives a whole moral dimension that opens up the book to uh, questions of animal rights and ethics and so on. We should also point out that uh, this is a very, from my point of view, a very exciting uh, book. And it becomes a kind of road novel, too, because uh, without giving too much away, there's a point in which uh, Sam is taken away by this dark figure, Moncrief and put in a breeding facility. And Amy uh, gets a job there in order to kidnap Sam and run away with him. And by the way, in my research, this actually happened once with a young woman who fell in love with her chimp and absconded with him. And so that gives me a whole um, a way of, of, of showing America and, and the Southwest and where she winds up and, um, uh, what uh, what the mechanics and ethics of that wind up being. Uh, this was not the only incident from life and your research into uh, chimpanzee uh, our intersections with them that that you that you put into this book. I mean, I, as you talked earlier that these chimps are, you know, wrenched from their mother's arms in the wild. And we understand that we see that through the eyes of the chimps in this book. And, and there was one point, too, I thought that was particularly fascinating, a, a chimp named Azazel, um, who is, you know, a, a I'm guessing a demon in hell, essentially. The name yes. is a demon yes, in yes. hell. <laughs> and the, the chimp is uh, formidable, to say the least. He undertakes an action. Did that actually happen? No, I, I invented a lot around this. Uh, he is uh, unregenerate. He is, uh, he is assertive. He is asserting his power and doing everything he can in his uh, very intelligent uh, uh, perspective to escape and to commit violence as anybody would if they're locked up in a cage well you give his background i mean it's like uh, you know he is a, a freedom fighter in many ways and as you are and i don't <clears throat> i don't think it's uh overstating the matter to say that uh Dr. Moncrief uh, really is in the perception of the reader, and I think maybe by you, as you know, he is a Dr. Mangella 
of chimpanzees. Worse. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I love I love your analysis. Uh, it's exactly what I had hoped uh, I was getting out of this book. So yes, we do have a bad guy. Absolutely. Um, as you know, Rick, I'm never pushing any particular agenda in any of my novels or short stories. I'm creating works of art for my own purpose so that I can examine some of the issues we're talking about here. And I leave it to the reader to make his or her own decision as to what it all means and what the ethics are. However, <laughs> I have no problem with having a guy like Guy uh, who is uh, does what's most expeditious without any thought of ethics or a character like Amy, who has love, has pure affection, or a character like Moncrief, who is a bad guy. And again, I don't want to name names, but he is based on a character I read about uh, from this era, who controlled many of the professors who were doled out these chimps by him. And he bred them as a business. Again, in the beginning, they had to be abducted from their mothers in Africa, which is a terrible thing. They had to kill the mother. You know, imagine an animal this powerful and up in the tree, you shoot the mother and take the baby. And, but then, since that was so expensive, and eventually, uh, law, there were laws against it. Uh, why not have a breeding facility and breed them? And so Azazel is, uh, is a prime breeder. You know, your descriptions of the um of uh sam one of the things that's very interesting about them is when we first encounter sam um he's looking at the world around him and even though he sees other humans and is able to see the part of his own body he thinks of himself as a human because that's how he's been instructed to think of himself and he sees these things called the black bugs. And it took me a while to figure out exactly what the black bugs were. But I think that part is the way you convey that in his consciousness and the reader's experience of the book is it's in a very interesting, you know, writerly effect that seems, you know, finely tuned. So talk about exploring that. It had, did that happen in the prose? Was there, in the writing, how much consciousness did you experience of that in terms of how to create that effect for the reader and for Sam? In some of the um, nonfiction books on this topic, I came up with uh, uh, similar scenarios in which uh, talking in sign language to the chimps uh, the authors had uh, given the sign language in bold letters so that you know that it's not spoken. Uh, I, I, one second here. I, I have a couple of books, right? Um, one of the best and most heartbreaking is Next of Kin by Roger Fouts. And when he is showing sign language conversations between researchers and chimps, he uses that kind of notation uh, so that the you know that it, it is being conveyed in sign language, but also it emphasizes the nouns that the animal knows. The animal doesn't have the fluidity to talk as we are talking. So again, we talked of point of view earlier. So I am in Sam's brain and to convey to you, the reader, uh, that uh, these are like black bugs. These are words that he fixates on. Uh, they are they're markers for him. So then I have put those in bold lettering, just as uh, uh, Fouts has done in his book and others others too. Uh, there are many uh, brilliant brilliant books on this subject. You know, I think one of the things that I think we're going to see in the next ten to twenty years is a real rethink of uh, what quote unquote intelligence is. And this also has to, is tied to something else too, which we don't understand, which is consciousness. Um, and, and Sam and 
uh, chimpanzees and pigs and, and a whole spectrum of, of species that share the planet with us do have consciousness. At, th at this point, I think we define is, do they understand when they see themselves in the mirror who that they that 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 is them and right. they, the mirror test. There, yeah. are, there are several tests of animal consciousness and, you know, with dogs, uh, pigs, uh, uh, crows, ravens, these these are at the top of the chart in terms of our understanding of their consciousness in our own terms. Can an animal, a baby, there's a certain point in, with, in human development too, where a child can look in a mirror and have no idea that that is his image. And so with researchers, they'll put, like, say, a, a black spot on, the, on the, the head of the animal or on the face of the animal. And if the animal removes it or sees it, then it's an indication that the animal knows that that, in fact, is a representation of his or her own self. Yeah, so yeah, I'm fascinated by animal consciousness, what they know, and um, their way of appreciating the world and interpreting the world is radically different from ours because they're radically different species. Birds, for instance, uh, crows, which are so in incredibly intelligent, um, they have a language of sorts. Uh, we can we can barely sort it out. Uh, why would why would they want to ape us or, or, or parrots? You know, we teach them phrases. It's, it's like a trick. It's like a parlor trick. But it really has nothing to do with their consciousness. Their consciousness is completely different from ours and, and in many ways much richer than ours um, and in many ways lesser because they don't have the extent of language that we do or the size of the brain or the brain power. Well, you know, too, um, a lot of this is, I think, that one aspect that's ignored is the import of physiognomy and the sensorium that we have, uh, the what we can see, how we can see, what we can hear, and, and how we can smell. I mean, to our dogs, you know, I take our my dogs for a walk every morning and, you know, I'm looking out at the ocean and seeing, wow, there's, you know, the Pacific Ocean, isn't it beautiful and endless? And there, my pug's noses are on the ground and they're, they live in a completely different sensorium. And I, I, you deal with this uh, uh, in, in this book, you know, that because the experience, the input to the brain is so completely di different. The structure of thought and the consciousness itself is very different. In a sense, I think it, it's it's helpful to think that we inhabit the earth not with different, lesser versions of ourselves, but with a with a slew of different alien species that, even if we could communicate with them, we wouldn't have much to say because. Us, our experience and understanding of the world is just so violently different. And violent is uh, an applicable word in this book. Yeah, exactly, Rick. Uh, it's one of the motivating factors for me to explore this, this issue. Just precisely as you've said, uh, the other species have evolved their own uh, senses uh, and use them for their own needs. Otherwise, they would have died off long ago. Uh, the dog is, is a particularly great example. Uh, is the dog not intelligent because it doesn't respond necessarily to what we say? No, it is responding to uh, something else altogether. That is, uh, their olfactory lobes are, are huge. Uh, uh, you know, my dog is, is is smelling some guy cooking bacon three blocks away, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whereas it doesn't interest me and it's not necessary for my um, um, development and, uh, and existence to have that particular uh, sense. Uh, at one point in our evolution, we did use our olfactory lobes uh, olfactory sense much more than we do now because it's kind of de for us. We don't really need it as much as we once did. I keep waiting for somebody to discover the 
equal tempered scale of smell, you know, the musical equivalent. So you could just play smells like on a piano keyboard, but not hasn't happened yet. Right, and in the movie theater, smell o vision. Smell o vision. <laughs> smell o vision. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, as long as it as that doesn't the the scent of some movies doesn't stick stick with you as you leave. Um, in the old days, uh, I went to see some Les Blank documentaries. Occasionally, Les Blank was there, and I remember he he did one about garlic. Garlic is my mother, I think it's called. And yeah, he had a pot of garlic boiling in the middle of the theater while we watched the movie it's you know that's the next stage right that's why not that's the next stage you know one of the things that i i really liked about this book is it's a it's really an it is an exciting book it's it's a, a page turner because from the very beginning when we meet sam we understand how incredibly powerful he is you know we the, a chimpanzee can literally rip a human being limb from limb without much a lot of effort on chimpanzee's part if it if you get it irate irate enough so i mean from the very beginning we're understanding that sam is a, a ticking time bomb yes that drum beat is going under the surface throughout. I'm just using my novelist instincts to tell the story. And yes, all of the issues that we've discussed here today are what interest me. But in order to uh, uh, convey it to an audience, I'm using a novelist techniques. It's an exciting adventure. It's a road story. It's a love story. It's got uh, a violent confrontation coming. You can feel it from the beginning, as you suggest. And, and two, talk about pacing out uh, the love story between Amy and, and Sam. In a sense, it's it's a mute, meet cute love at first sight. And so you know, uh, uh, talk about it. It's almost in a sense a hallmark, uh, you know, a platonic love of friends that go runs at a deep. Uh, level of the soul i mean these she and sam are connected in a way more intimate than in many ways that humans can connect to one another. much more so than she's connected to guy her ordered boyfriend and this is true another irony of the book um he in the beginning is sort of like sam's mother he's still an infant and she is his caregiver 24 7 uh is he matures and their relationship develops, it becomes more than that, more of a sort of mature love relationship that you might have with anyone uh, whom, whom you're intimate with. And, and two, I, I, there are some points in, in the, the novel uh, that where you develop it's as a novelist and as a reader it's quite thrilling to to see sam take make leaps in behavior and logic and to learn to do things that you know we don't normally associate with animals and as you were writing this one like when you started out sitting down with and creating sam in those early chapters and, and he meets amy and and we have guy and and we're kind of seeing all of that uh, interaction heading towards the, the this pot of gold at the end of Johnny Carson. Were you thinking of developing these other uh, consciousness parts of his, or did that like kind of come out of the book itself, the the story itself? Well, everything evolves, and all all my books and stories, I don't have an outline; it just happens. And so uh, I follow where the story is going to take me. Um, uh, Sam's development, uh, we see through the chapters, through his eyes. And uh, 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 that was most interesting to me, uh, particularly because there's this break in his life, this tragic break when he is removed from the only place he's known, uh, raised as a human being, and then thrust into a cage in a breeding facility with this big 
bad man with a, a cattle prod there to 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 see that the, everything is in order and so you see him almost i suppose in a dickensian way as a as a, an orphan in an orphanage uh, uh, undergoing cruel treatment and yet he's not a human being he's an animal but do animals have rights and what is their consciousness and what is um, our obligation to them well, I, we learn exactly what that is by seeing, you know, the parts of the novel that you write from Sam's perspective. Now, one thing I have to ask is when you were shifting between the points of view, Amy and Guy, I mean, they, they are also pretty different. I mean, Amy's much more human than Guy. Guy is kind of... He, he is uh, almost in some ways uh, less human than Sam. <laughs> I love it, Rick. I mean, uh, all these things emerge from the book and give the reader uh, questions to ponder. Again, I'm not trying to point anybody in any particular direction, but um, if they interpret the book in the way you do, uh, it, it should open up... Uh, a whole new avenue for, for many people who hadn't thought of these issues before. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of ironic and funny that you know Sam is more central to the book and to the life of Amy than is her boyfriend, Guy, who is the kind of scientist or the kind of person who is uh, obsessed by uh, pursuing his work and, and advancement. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Carson. To get on TV with this animal, uh, to do tricks, to, to impress people, to rise to the next level in his profession uh, without regard to uh, what Sam might think or feel because in Guy's estimation, he's still just an animal. And it's interesting too, your perception of science itself, the process of science in this novel. And on one hand, you have Guy who's pursuing science he uh, he is you know coming to some understanding and with the with sam and he's making some real progress in the study of science but there, he's obsessed with so you know being a celebrity essentially or you know whereas moncrief has a more bottom line sense of science which is well if I can, if it, as long as it's making me money, I'm going there. The second that money disappears, I'm going somewhere else. So right. Well, we are apes, and Moncrief is the leader of the troop uh, because he's the most powerful in, in every, every way. You know, Rick, um, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to read just a little bit of Sam's point of view when we first meet him. That we have time would be great. That? Absolutely. I'd love to hear that. All right. Hold on. Let me just get out. So this is the, our first uh, view of Sam's point of view after the chapter that I read the first few lines of before when Amy sees him on TV. This is Sam's point of view. And this happens after he's been removed and put into a facility. Chapter is called Key Lock Out. <clears throat> he didn't have a word for words, or not yet anyway, but he knew words all the same. He knew key, he knew lock, he knew out. He was a prisoner, though he didn't have a word for that either. And even if he did, it would have been meaningless. What did a word, any word, have to do with this situation, in this place, in the on-rushing, unstoppable cataract of now and the fear, afraid? That came with it. He had diarrhea, which existed as a pain in the gut, a stench, a hot, wet squirt of shit that needed no terminology and no afterthought. He wanted his blanket, a blanket, any blanket. He was cold. He was distraught. He rocked from side to side. He stared at nothing. He plucked the hairs from his arms, his chin, the crown of his head, trichotillomania, and if he didn't know that term either, how could he? What would it matter if he did? Would that get him out of here? Sleep was his only release. 
and it came to her in a blaze of shuffled images, the bathroom light so bright it was like the sun in the sky, a trickle of blood warm water in the tub, and the face of the one who meant most to him, whose name he'd invented in the gesture of pinching his right nipple the way he pinched hers when she was with him in the bed, and they were both warm and his shirt was on the floor. But then he woke, he always woke, to the screams and the reek and his own diarrhea and the food he refused and the din and the excuse me, and the food he refused and the din of flesh pounding on metal. When he was thirsty, thirst came to him as a sensation, pre-verbal, non-verbal, and he picked up his cup and drained it. He didn't think drink, didn't sign drink, he just drank. Until the cup was empty, that is, and no one came to fill it for him. Then the word was there. And the sign, the gesture, thumb to the lower lip, descriptor and request, both. And when no one listened, when the cup went unfilled and the box, the cage, the prison, he measured over and over with the length and breadth of his body, spoke despair to him, spoke rage. He screamed. He screamed. He screamed. So that is our first view of Sam and Sam's consciousness. You know, as you are reading that, I was thinking that uh, one of the things this book does is level the playing field in that it doesn't it not only elevates Sam at least to the point where the reader can understand Sam it also looks at the humans <laughs> and it takes us down a notch or two <laughs> Uh, in terms of, you know, what kind of animals we are. And that is, I suppose, uh, one of the things you, that one is prone to contemplate after reading this book is just what kind of animals are these hairless apes? Yeah, well, of course, I don't want to be uh, exclusively a misanthrope. I love our species, especially the women. And um, uh, again, I, I can't help but contemplate the conditions of our being on this unfathomable planet in which we have to invent gods to explain the inexplicable. Uh, a part of in one section in here, we wonder, do, do apes have God? Do apes know about God? Uh, at one point, in the, when apes were first found in Africa and brought back to Europe, uh, people wondered if they knew about God, because that is what defines humanity, to know God. But of course, to my view, God is simply one more myth that we've created uh, to try to give us comfort in a universe in which there is no comfort. We're born, we die. There is nothing more than that. And we breed, we breed if we're lucky <laughs> and pass on our genes. That's how we got here. That's how the chimps got here. That's how all the creatures we are driving to extinction got here. And we tell stories about it, which is, I think, uh, when, uh, if there is something that is, at this point, uniquely human, it is the, um, uh, the impulse to tell stories about everything. Gods were created mostly to as a very convenient character to tell a story and, and that i think is one of the things that uh you do so well in this book but i and, and in all your books is to tell stories in a manner that allow us to uh contemplate who we are wow yes well said that's my hope anyway now um in in I'm wondering if uh, this book seemed like a, a book that I, I'd love you to see this done on the screen and you could could actually do this with a kind of the, the motion capture. Animatronics, yeah, sure, of course it could be done. Uh, right now there's a, a Hollywood strike, uh, but even before the writer's strike, uh, no one, as far as I know, has acquired rights to it. But yeah, I love films and I would love to see all, all of my books made into films. But I don't participate in film. This is my life is to create the novels instead. Uh, this I'm an artist. And what, to your point earlier, yeah, this is what is our real essence as human beings is to be able to create art 
and to contemplate our own existence. It's one thing to have the mirror test and have an animal see that uh, a black patch has been put on its forehead and know that that is its forehead. And it's another to be able to reflect on that. And again, how we reflect on it is through language. How do we know who we are? Well, because we have language and we can tell ourselves. You know, we haven't mentioned, but this book also is a kind of companion to an earlier book, which is, doesn't have anything to do with animal consciousness, but with human consciousness and language. Talk, talk, in which the heroine is deaf and she has to fight against the hearing world, which wants her to adapt their conventions, our conventions, and demeans her and the deaf community because their form of communication is inferior to ours, in, at least in, in the eyes of uh, hearing people. And so this is another way of getting at what I'm getting at in Talk To Me. So Talk Talk from 2006, Talk To Me now. And all of your novels do something that only the novel can do, which is to engage the reader in, in the, the process of language. You can tell us in words something that no movie could ever tell us and no song could ever tell us. It's just a, it, an art form that can never run out. True, but of course we've moved on in technology to uh, other art forms and the reading is less an experience that people have and savor. We are essentially given our, our media, uh, films, for instance, I love films. There it is. It's been shaped, you absorb it. But with a book, it's interactive, like, like the video games that obsess my sons. Uh, it's interactive. You are part of the game. You are decoding it. And, and so I think uh, for me anyway, and I, I think for my many readers, it's, it's a very special art form. It's one-on-one, -on -one, one consciousness to another. And as you decode the book, as you read the book, as you see the scenes, you are seeing those scenes as no other individual ever would or could because you are unique. And that's one of the great things about literature. T.C. Boyle is the author of Talk To Me, and I highly recommend you listen to him talk to you by reading Talk To Me. Thank you for joining me, T.C. As always, Rick, it's a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.